Hello, and thank you for listening to the MicroBinFi podcast. Here, we will be discussing topics in microbial bioinformatics. We hope that we can give you some insights, tips, and tricks along the way. There is so much information we all know from working in the field, but nobody writes it down. There is no manual, and it's assumed you'll pick it up. We hope to fill in a few of these gaps. My co-hosts are Dr. Nabil Ali Khan and Dr. Andrew Page. I am Dr. Lee Katz. Both Andrew and Nabil work in the Quadrum Institute in Norwich, UK, where they work on microbes in food and the impact on human health. I work at Centers for Disease Control and Prevention and am an adjunct member at the University of Georgia in the US. Hello, and welcome to the MicroBinFi podcast. I am Nabil Ali Khan, and I'll be your host today. This episode, we'll be doing a deep dive into bioinformatics in regards to antimicrobial resistance. And today, I'm joined by a very special guest, Dr. Kate Baker. So Dr. Baker is a Wellcome Trust Clinical Research Career Development Fellow and Honorary Senior Lecturer at the Department of Functional and Comparative Genomics in the Institute of Integrative Biology at the University of Liverpool. She is interested in genomic epidemiology of infectious diseases with a particular interest in what drives the emergence and persistence of disease. Her work focuses largely on Shigella and antimicrobial resistance. She's really interested in picking apart the independent epidemiology of antimicrobial resistant determinants and how they shape bacterial populations and disease outbreaks. She works in collaboration with public health agencies and works across both high and low income settings. Thank you, Kate, for joining me today. Thanks for having me on, Nabil. So I wanted to first start off by asking, uh, who are you and what do you do? What is a typical day in the life of Kate Baker? There's, there's not many typical days. There's not much routine. But basically, I mean, I'm, I'm a research group leader at the University of Liverpool. I mean, I guess I spend quite a large amount of my time managing my um, team. I've got um, really, really excellent people. I've got a couple of postdocs and two and a half PhD students. And so obviously a lot of my time is spent sort of supervising them and helping them grow grow their projects. Yeah, so what happened to the other half? <laughs> the other half. The other half is supervised by someone else. Hopefully you got the better half. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and then I mean, I guess quite a lot of time is dedicated to, you know, directing the ship of the group in terms of not just delivering the current science, but planning what we're going to do next and grant writing and just maintaining relationships and communicating with collaborators. I've got like an embarrassingly small teaching load and um, a few other roles in the university, um, as well as some broader community roles. You know, I'm an editor for microbial genomics, you know, attending at conferences and giving talks and, and those kind of things as well. So a few different hats. What about you in terms of dealing with antimicrobial resistance? Uh, how much of your work has been focusing on on that? I'm kind of, uh, I guess, mostly interested in emerging infectious diseases, really. But I think as soon as you switch to bacteria, you know, antimicrobial resistance becomes a massive part of that because it's so prevalent in shaping bacterial populations at the moment. And so you become kind of an accidental expert, or expert's a strong word, but you know, you become very involved in looking at antimicrobial resistance because of your interest in other things. So and that would be the key determinant, would that be the key determinant globally for emerging infectious diseases would be antimicrobial resistance? Uh, not necessarily. It's certainly, uh, well, certainly well funded at the moment, which is um, another reason I guess everyone's working on it. I think it's 
one of the most obvious things because it's this really artificial kind of selection pressure which we've placed on bacterial populations is very measurable it's very changeable and the other changes in populations are a bit more subtle and happen over time it's not that they're not happening it's just that amr is kind of this great global experiment that we've been doing with bacterial populations and we're now kind of in a position to measure the impact of that so when you approach a project what would be your favorite bioinformatics tools in regard in regards to say detecting and annotating this kind of resistance then? So my most frequently used tool, I mean, I, I don't have a favorite tool because I think you have to pick the tool that's fit for your purpose. Um, so it depends on the data set you're working on, on what you're trying to do, right? Um, I most commonly use ResFinder and PointFinder because, you know, they, they do a very good job on the pathogen that I work on. And I'm almost always interested in the whole genomic context of a gene. So I would very rarely not want assembled genomes alongside my resistance gene predictions. So it's not a big deal for me to wait for assembly to then go on to, to use those tools. So other than uh, having that genomic context, do you notice any slight differences in just outright quality in detection versus assemblies uh, against reads, for instance? I think it's, I mean, to be fair, I don't have a huge amount of experience detecting in reads. I mean, you want to get straight to the point, so why why bother, I suppose, right? Well, it's just in that, I mean, I'm not in a field, you know, I'm not in metagenomics where assembly is complicated. I'm not in like bedside clinical diagnostics where you need to be working with the raw data as it comes off the machine. It's not, for the projects I work on, it's not a big deal to set up the assemblies and come back the next day and then get the resistance results. You know, I'm not working to the time scale that I need the results. Okay, but often uh, with antimicrobial resistance, a lot of these are on fairly complex uh, cassettes with a lot of repetitive elements. Do you find that you can actually recover these to the extent that you'd like? Right. No, sorry. I now understand your question. Of course not. No. Yeah, it's horribly limited. And Shigella is like the worst pathogen for that. I was just checking myself because I know it's being recorded. The worst pathogen. I'm pretty sure that it's up there um, in terms of fragmentation. What would be the expect well, what would be the expected number of contigs you'd expect from a Shigella genome as compared to other to E. coli, for instance? So of course it all depends how you sequence it, but using kind of standard um, Illumina pipelines, looking at kind of, you know, several hundred base pair fragment libraries and paired end reads, you're still only gonna get like three to four hundred contigs for Shigella because they have loads of insertion sequences just littered throughout their genome. There's a really good paper by um, Jane Hawkey and Kat Holt in, and, and co, obviously, in um, preprint at the moment, which shows just how you know, extensive the IS diversity in Shigella is. And compared to E. coli, you know, E. coli is kind of hovering um, in the tens of IS or repeat elements that break them down. And so it's something like 50 to 100 contigs rather to several hundred. And so it's really a problem in Shigella. Following on from that, in terms of Shigella, where is the antimicrobial resistance for people who don't know the species very well? Is a lot of it driven by point mutations on the chromosome? Is a lot of it driven by uh, plasmids? Where is it actually coming from? I guess it depends on the um, phenotype you're looking at, obviously. So ciprofloxacin and resistant Shigella is a really big problem. It's on the World Health Organization's top dozen you know, priority pathogens for new antimicrobial agents. And that's because ciprofloxacin is the recommended treatment for Shigella and we don't have a licensed vaccine and it causes a massive global burden of disease. So that's a really big problem. 
but it's and, and it's caused by point mutations but there's only one kind of genetic context to it really in that we get these accumulation of point mutations in a quinolone resistance determining region but in addition to those that really important kind of chromosomally mediated phenotype there's a huge number of acquired resistance gene um, phenotypes in Shigella and a lot of them are on quite commonly found um, mobile genetic elements and so there's integrated chromosomal islands as well as a number of plasmids that have kind of found quite a comfortable home in Shigella and so I think quantifying antimicrobial resistance is something that's really hard to do. Yeah so we've touched on a couple of different elements that are mo that are introducing or mobilizing antimicrobial resistance so so far we've had point mutations on the chromosome, ICEs and plasmids, so mobile genetic elements. Are there other mobile genetic elements? Is it ever uh, mobilized by a phage or something else? Uh, what are some of the other mechanisms out there? So obviously you get you know, smaller units of mobile genetic determination, so things like integrons and transposons. I know that phage-mediated resistance can happen. It's not it's certainly not a big part of what happens in Shigella, and I can't think of a reference where someone has demonstrated it for Shigella. It's not to say it couldn't happen. But, but yeah, that's the list in my head. All right, and, and that sounds like a rather heady list of things to keep track of. And uh, are there any particular tools uh, other than ResFinder and PointFinder that you use to detect these? Uh, what are the gen other approaches, like what, what are the approaches that you're familiar with that you would use to identify these different systems? Yeah, so I mean, obviously there's Plasmid Finder, which is, um, you know, based around replicon typing and ink typing of, um, of genetic sequences. And I certainly have used that. Um, and I'd like to couple it by actually pulling out AMR contigs and then, you know, AMR gene containing contigs and then putting them through Plasmid Finder. But in my experience, I mean, they're very good, but it's got the same problem everything else has, right? It's database limitation. So you quite often get things that either don't type or because of the fragmentation issue, you know, you might get an integron on a plasmid. But the problem is by the time you get the contigs, they're fragmented and you've just got the integron. So you can't obviously plasmid type that. And you can look at association and stuff. But really, for this kind of work, you know, we need to be moving towards long range sequencing to be pulling out that level of detail. So based on your experience, there is no way to resolve this from short reads. You have to have more uh, sequencing information through long reads. I guess it depends on the pathogen, but certainly for my group working mainly with Shigella, that's the direction we're going in. Okay, and it's interesting you, you pick up on the merging the sort of uh, res finder and plasmid finder because a lot of people keep asking me the same thing of how do I get you know identify the ink type and then also figure out which resistance genes are associated with that with that plasmid and to my knowledge there isn't a tool that does it I just say well you're going to have to get your hands dirty with sequences and blast to figure it out sort of I mean I think you can do quite a lot of um, statistical magic to, to associate you know the presence of a particular ink type with the presence of a particular resistance gene yeah so one way you can approach that problem is to do statistical analysis of the presence of a particular you know, ink types and, and plasmid groups with particular resistance genes. And and you can always use that kind of approach to then target long read sequencing. You know, we're still not, um, or most of us aren't in the position where we can long read sequence the kind of data sets we've been working with with short read sequencing. So, you know, we've been working with hundreds of genomes at a time and it's still not financially viable, nor are the tools available to process things 
you know, at that scale in long-range sequencing. So you can use those kind of statistical approaches to target your long-range sequencing. And then once you have a scaffold of a reference, then you can obviously use your short-read data in the ways that we're all familiar with by like mapping back and, and you know, looking to see how the coverage is across that region and those things. As part of your group, I'm sure there's a lot uh, in the wet lab as well, taking these predictions and then test, testing them empirically. In your experience, with, in particular for Shigella, what's what is your experience with the accuracy of these predictions and what you can actually see based off the phenotype? Actually, it's quite variable in terms of just preps and intra-sample variation, intra-colony variation, uh, even intra-prep variation between different genomic preps that we've done. There's a lot of variation in you know the gene content and the phenotype between those sorts of scales and I think that's something that's going to come back to kind of you know I don't know if it's just Shigella or if everyone else's pathogens are doing this as well but I think it's going to become an important part of how we do our studies. Well it, it sort of sounds familiar from from my experience uh, we or oh, I sometimes see uh, mixed mixed colonies from the same plate you have multiple pigs and you sort of see different uh, different resistance patterns within something that's supposed to be clonal. I don't know if you're seeing something like that yourself. No, that's exactly it. So we see quite a lot of variation in um, genome content and, and, you know, including those crucial mobile genetic elements. And, and, you know, we're just sort of starting to get to the bottom of some of that um, in some more focused studies. But, you know, I guess it worries me in how things are interpreted. Part of the problem is as well, you know, some of these resistance phenotypes are more obvious than others in the, you know, Obviously, if you have a functional beta-lactamase gene, then that is going to confer the phenotype. You know, some of the resistances are much more obvious than others, whereas a lot of things like changes in modulation of expression of resistance genes and um, things that might cause more subtle changes in the minimum inhibitory concentrations are not so easy to detect. Because I think a lot of the time um, we work in this space of kind of resistant or susceptible, and that's actually not the reality of what these bugs are doing. You know, this is actually continuous data, which we've forced to be discrete for the convenience of analysis. So uh, you mentioned that there are some that are easier to call over others. For me, things like sulfonamide resistance is brain dead easy, and others are a lot more cryptic. Which, for you, uh, do you agree with that? And, are, and which are the ones that you find that that you would just say are really easy to detect genomically and then in the lab? We don't do a huge amount of phenotype genotype correlation in my group, but the experiences I have um, to date that I'd comment on for that, you know, beta-lactamase is a really complex um, trait. I think, it, you know, I guess if it were a human trait, we'd probably call it polygenic. You know, for enterobacteriaceae, they have uh, you know, AMP-C genes encoded on the chromosome and small variations in their promoter region can cause a higher resistance than others. And then obviously there's other genes that can come in as horizontal gene exchange like BLAROX-BLAR-TEM genes. You know, to look at that as a gene presence equals phenotype presence is, is just kind of artificial. And, you know, obviously for a lot of these, there's efflux pumps and things involved as well. And when it comes to something more like azithromycin resistance. I mean, if you have azithromycin resistance, if you have an MPHA gene and an ERMLB gene, you will be resistant at a high level against azithromycin. But then there's, again, all these kind of shades of gray at the lower regions that, that are harder to pick apart. Is it always this cascade of multiple events in play? I mean, it sounds, it sounds like even the simplest ones are fairly difficult to call or you wouldn't necessarily say that the predictions you get straight out of these databases would be reliable? 
I'm probably getting too caught up in the grey, right? Some of them are very obvious. If you have, you know, MPHA and ERMMB, you will have a high level azithromycin resistance. But I think it's important not to lose sight of the fact that below these massive, you know, these ones where there's this obvious massive increase in MIC, where there's a very specific mode of action, there's a lot of stuff happening underneath to do with regulation and to do with um, small changes in expression of you know, a bunch of normal bacterial defense mechanisms that we are not yet classifying as resistance genes. Yeah, I mean, you touch on mode of action. How much do we understand of the mode of action? I suppose uh, at the moment we have a good idea of the low-hanging fruit, the stuff that's really obvious, but what proportion do we just simply don't understand? I really don't think that there's a quantitation for it. I mean, in terms of, do you mean for every resistance gene, do we have a function? Is that or, or, or is it kind of for the amount of volume of burden of disease? Do we How much of the resistance do we understand? Or? No, I, I mean, I'm talking um, more in the sense that uh, we've, got the, we've got this obvious threshold where we can figure out very obvious, um, ob- very obvious cases, and then there are probably more, much more oblique ones, which uh, are gray. But it's, are they, what's the range of that? Is it that, okay. are the gray area ones like 5% of the total, case, uh, total cases we could expect, or uh, is it 90%? Do you, you mean kind of correlation of genotype and phenotype? No, just being able to, just being able to predict it reliably, uh, with these tools, um, bioinformatically, or even just in the lab. Yeah. Okay. So it depends on on um, what you're working on, right? So for Shigella, the prediction is actually pretty good, um, and that varies with antimicrobial class. Um, probably for the reasons we were discussing before, where a lot of things have more than one thing involved and might have other mechanisms. But obviously, Shigella is really closely related to everyone's favorite pathogen, E. coli. You know, it's a big human pathogen, so there's been a lot of studies into the antimicrobial resistance of it and the mechanisms that underpin that. Whereas if you are working with some wild and beautiful, you know, heretofore unknown pathogen environmented from, you know, from environmental samples, then your chances of being able to correlate phenotype and genotype are probably much um, are, are less good. You know, it's a biased system towards human clinical pathogens. Oh, but you're saying that I can't, I can't write one universal tool that just solves everyone's problems. That would That's be nice. Well, if you can, you'd never have to work again. <laughs> <laughs> There's so much money in microbial bioinformatics. So. But you're saying, but that tool would be very unlikely. Yeah, I think unlikely because it. To here's the thing. Well, I think so. Antimicrobial resistance is a bit like how everyone used to talk about cancer. It's such a complex, multifaceted thing that you know it just involves so many different mechanisms and forms of mobility and you know methods of detection in that you know some things are all in the regulation and and that won't be detected by you know most of the tools we have now and and i think once we can start to kind of break it down a bit you know we are starting to in terms of talking about you know point mutations versus horizontally acquired genes you know we are picking it apart a bit Um, But I don't think there will ever be a one-size-fits-all tool because it's just such a massive, complex phenotype that we're trying to capture with this catch-all word. We used to talk about cancer and cancer was one thing and people talked about curing cancer and at least now, you know, that's matured a bit and now people are talking about breast cancer and melanoma and testicular cancer. And, And, you know, I think to be fair, you know, antimicrobial resistance needs the same 
kind of thing instead of trying to talk about it as if it's this one thing that we will be able to solve in one way it's it's not the case you know it's far too complex a phenomenon to be you know trying to address i mean i think on that note of like um you know trying to correlate gene is present therefore resistance i mean one thing that really gets me about the whole um as we move into genomics for prediction of resistance um in surveillance what bothers me is that the gold standard is sort of MIC breakpoints, you know, in that quite often a measure of a genomic prediction tool is whether or not it matches the MIC data. And again, it's the exception to the rule, but like MIC data doesn't always match the clinical picture in terms of the gold standard should really be treatment response and treatment failure rather than whether or not the bugs behave the same in the lab. And I, I don't know how we move away from that, but it is one thing that bugs me with all these kind of benchmarking studies. It's like, oh, okay, and we got it to match this MIC of this bug in a plate. And is that really the gold standard that we're aiming for to recapitulate MIC in a genomic test? I don't know. I mean, it's it's difficult to get hold of that sort of information about the ultimate outcome for treatment from my angle as someone who'd have to write a tool and try to and try and validate it i don't have many options so if there is a such a how i mean constructing such a cohort would be amazing and having that available as as the gold standard would mm. be excellent but i have no idea how we construct that it's not really like it's multifactorial as well isn't it like the, you know whether or not someone recovers from an infection is not just to do especially once they're at that point you know it's not just to do with what antibiotics they get but I just feel like, you know, trying to correlate it with MIC is not necessarily the best um, thing we could come up with. Well, this sounds like a much larger, like, ethnographic. This, this actually seems to come back to the cancer question of trying to determine which mutations are, are, are causative for a particular condition, that we have to track people over a very long period of time and record everything and have a lot of people to get rid of any bias and then go back and look at what were they being treated with and how did that relate to and then look at what the genomic elements were that contributed one way or the other yeah that's well, a lot of work and that'll keep us employed forever exactly i was going to say and look thoroughly right so we're going to be sequencing like many samples from an individual and <laughs> yeah it's going to be expensive but then uh well let's 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 uh step back a bit i mean you must have looked at the numbers of how big of a threat is amr to to, to us and globally is is it worth that effort? Oh, do we have a, while it may be very very expensive, maybe it, this is such a significant threat that we need to actually do something to this scale. Yeah, I'm going to give another politician answer to this one. So I think quantifying AMR is really um, just risky because we don't really know what we mean by. It. And I mean, you know, you'll be familiar with the figures. You know, you can I can quote the O'Neill report with you. You know, 10 million dead by 2050. But, um, and, and you know, there's some figures from the CDC and WHO about how much it's costing. Um, but I'm, I'm not sure we actually do have a good value on it. And it's possibly because it's so poorly defined. And again, how can you say that someone's septic infection with Staphylococcus aureus cost this much more because it was resistant rather than susceptible? I don't think we can really determine that. You know, on so many levels, in terms of had this bug not got resistant, we might have had X number of less cases. I just don't think it's particularly easy to quantify. So whether or not it's worth the money, I'm not sure how we can do it. I mean, it's certainly a concern. And there's this great kind of perspectives paper out from a, um, I can't remember her name, but this wonderful woman at the LSHTM. 
It talks about the fact that AMR has had to be managed as a kind of um, a non-actuarial threat, so the, you know, a non-quantified threat, but it's been managed to the point of action from a variety of people across the policy sort of sphere to, um, you know, to, to, you know, it's mobilised people to action despite the fact that we just don't have good numbers on how much it costs and how many infections and these kind of things. So what would be your wish list for the bioinformatics community to tackle in regards to antimicrobial resistance? And you can start off with simple things and then we can talk about more complicated systems you'd like to see. So my big thing is context. I want to know about the networks of these genes. Right, because it's not for the chromosomal mediated resistance, it's reasonably simple. You know, it gets a selective advantage, it's very Darwinian. You know, we kind of understand a lot about population genetics with regards to vertically inherited resistance. But I think for the horizontally acquired resistance, you know, we need a lot more work and we need to understand the ecology of these mobile genetic elements. We need to unify what we know about their ecology with the epidemiology. And in order to do that, we need to be able to call where genes are lying and to follow those networks. And we just don't have those tools yet, right? So the long read sequencing will be part of the solution to that problem. But obviously, we need the bioinformatic tools to process them at scale and to be able to pick apart those units of inheritance. Like I was sort of saying earlier, you know, integron on a plasmid in this pathogen background, in that pathogen background. You know, we don't have tools to do that in a kind of systematic way. Um, and, you know, and to, then to kind of understand the mechanisms that drive those gene transfer networks in terms of what are the limitations and barriers to gene flow between Shigella and E. coli and Enterobacteriaceae more generally, and then, you know, other components of the microbiota and, and, you know, different host networks as well. And so we need to be working harder to understand that complex systems. And, you know, ultimately, I think for the isolate stuff, certainly for human clinical pathogens, I mean, Shigella is a bit privileged being separated from a lot of the complications of reservoir hosts and things. But long read sequencing is going to have a, a lot of responsibility for pushing that forward, which is great. Well, we're almost done with our time together which is always sad. But any final thoughts from you? Not really, but I did I did have a war story if you wanted to throw that. Oh, I'd love to hear a war story, yes. This, it's an embarrassing war story, but I guess I just wanted to confess that um, in the early days of my time in microbiogenomics, I um, did an entire study and analysis um, based on ARDB anno, which I knew wasn't curated, but I was like, it's okay. It does what it says on the tin. This was a long time ago. And I completely missed a really important beta-lactobase gene. And luckily, a collaborator picked it up before it was um, published. But I guess just the take-home point is, you know, this stuff does matter. Tool selection does matter. Um, database selection does matter. And so just really encouraging everyone to be aware of what they're doing, what the tools are that they're using, and what be aware of what the biases are that they might miss. All right. Well, that's, that's an excellent uh, cautionary tale for everyone listening at home. And so uh, with that, I'd like to draw this episode to a close. Thank you very much, Kate, for joining me today. It's been a lot of fun. I think we touched on a lot of different topics, which I'm sure will get a lot of buzz on the Twitterverse. So thank you so much for, for joining me today. Thanks, Nabil. Thank you all so much for listening to us at home. If you like this podcast, please subscribe and like us on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, or the platform of your choice. And if you don't like this podcast, please don't do anything. This podcast was recorded by the Microbial Bioinformatics Group and edited by Nick Waters. The opinions expressed here are our own and do not necessarily reflect the views of CDC or the Quadrum Institute.